Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 10 this morning. And uh, last week we looked at the qualifications of the high priest. And this week um, we'll look at uh, how Jesus meets those qualifications. Hebrews 5 beginning in verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, He became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey Him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Father, I pray this morning You would give us ears to hear what the Spirit has to say. I pray that we would receive the Word with a readiness of mind. And Father, that we would give a diligent study to the things that we've heard this morning uh, as we go our separate ways this week. Father, I pray that You would use Your Word to teach us what we do not know and to make us and conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. We praise You and we thank You in the name of Jesus. Amen. In our text today, we're introduced to a somewhat mysterious figure known as Melchizedek. And at this point, I just want to bring us again to uh, just a quick review over what we've covered in the book of Hebrews. Now, you say, why do you constantly do this? Because I want these things to constantly be in your mind. I want them constantly to be reminded. I need to be reminded of these things. And I find the more that I remind you, I'm reminded myself. Therefore, we're both learning. So we're, gonna, we're just going to breeze through this, this, this review The author uh, is writing again to encourage these Jewish believers to remain faithful in the midst of persecution against this upstart religion known as Christianity. Now, what are we faced with at this moment in time today? We're faced with the very real possibility that we're going to have to go through some persecution in the days ahead. I'm not going to make a political statement. I'm just telling you folks, there is, there, there are, is a spiritual warfare that is going on right now in the hearts and minds of people. And there are people that seek to do God's people harm. That's a reality that the church has been faced with forever. It's not a politically left or politically right issue. It is a biblical issue. That we have faced persecution. Our ancestry, speaking in the Christian ancestry, has always faced some sort of persecution. So, as it was in this day, it was nothing new to see persecution. Now, at that time, let me say again, that Christianity was not viewed as a legal religion. It was seen to be illegal. And as a matter of fact, History tells us that it wasn't seen as a legal religion until Constantine came along. Constantine kind of, kind of brought all that together. He, 
made it part of, a, of, of the, the state, so to speak, but He made it where it was legal to be a Christian. Now, I mean, we've enjoyed freedoms in this country, but nonetheless, um, we're faced with that, again, with the possibility of, of persecution. Now, many, if not all of these Jewish Christians, were tempted to go back to the old religion because of this persecution. The reality that we're faced with is that we will be tempted to compromise in the face of persecution so that we are not persecuted. We will be tempted to compromise so that we can still work, so that we can still buy groceries, so that we can do so that we can still do things in our life that we're doing now. We're going to be tempted to compromise. We're going to be tempted to compromise the message so that we can remain a 501c3. I'm not trying to. I'm not making this about politics, folks. <laughs> the, the truth is, this is what we're faced with. And if you understand what was going on in those days, they were part of trade guilds. That's how they made their living, kind of like our unions today. And if you didn't bow to the god of that trade guild, you were kicked out of that trade guild, and you couldn't make a living. Now, don't you think if you've got a family, what, what's what's primary for your family, Brant? Taking care of them, right? Providing for them. Now, it doesn't mean that everyone's going to compromise, but that's the temptation that there's going to be. And folks, we must remain steadfast. That's why, that's why this author is making everything about Jesus Christ that He is worthy to be followed. He is superior to all of those Old Testament things that they were prone to go back to. And folks, I would submit to you this morning that Jesus Christ is far superior to any earthly um, security that we have on, in, in this day. This is what we're going to be faced with. The reality is Jesus enough to sustain us in this time. And that's what they were faced with. Is Jesus enough? We saw first that, that, uh, that He states in times past that God had in incremental and progressive ways spoke through the prophets to the fathers. That God... They didn't have the written word, but God spoke to the prophets and they spoke God's message to the fathers. We see in the Old Testament false prophets. False prophets were anyone that was anyone that did not speak the words of God. And the way to identify them carrying over from Sunday, their fruit uh, to know whether they were a true prophet or not was their prophecies. Did their prophecies come true? If it was no, then they're a false prophet. Now, over the last several months, we've had a bunch of, I'll just call them knuckleheads, given prophecies about President Trump and him being reelected and all of these things and just on and on. Guess what they're deemed as now? False prophets. Folks, you think God is standing and laughing and mocking at these people who profess to be something that they're actually not? Let's go on. So, the fathers that, that the prophets God spoke through the prophets to the fathers has in these last days spoken to us by his son. Now, what does that mean? That means that all the prophecies from the Old Testament are now fulfilled in Christ. Those prophets pointed to Christ. They prophesied about Christ. Everything pointed to Jesus Christ. And it's clear. In other words, Everything the prophet spoke of pointed to Jesus. It all pointed to Christ. Everything was looking forward to Jesus. And what he said is, as great as you think the prophets are, Jesus is greater. 
Jesus is superior to those prophets. He goes on to state that He's superior to the angels. Now we spent several weeks in, in that message, in that, in that part, and, and I won't rehash all that, but Jesus is superior to them because He's the Son and they're nothing more than ministering spirits sent to those who will inherit salvation. 114, chapter 114. There's obviously much more that can be said. And then the case was made that Jesus was superior to Moses. And this was a big deal. Because Moses was revered within the Jewish religion. And rather than compare in a negative light, right? there's some things about Moses that, that could be brought out. He just shows, rather than comparing a negative light, the difference between them, the author speaks of the faithfulness of both of them. He speaks of the faithfulness of Moses, who was a servant in the house. He was serving in the capacity that God called him to serve Israel. And Jesus was faithful over the house. And we see that as we get a picture in the Old Testament of Israel as a picture of the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He is faithful over His church even now. Even now in this day and age, He is faithful over His church. We we know all the great things about Moses. We know the things that we see with his birth and and with the way he was saved and, and, and the bulrush and whatnot and and the way Pharaoh's daughter took, took him and they revered him. But he says Jesus is greater. Jesus is far superior to Moses um, in this day. And then in chapter 4, the case was made that Jesus is superior to Joshua. Now, Canaan was never to be their final rest. It was a picture uh, of something greater to come. Because the rest that was offered in Moses was only temporal. But the rest offered in Christ is eternal. And the rest speaks of reconciliation. It speaks of reconciliation between a man who is at enmity with God and the holy God. And so that rest is seen in Christ. And now in this section, that actually began in chapter, uh, verse 14 of chapter 4, the author sets out to prove that Jesus is our great high priest. And as a matter of fact, He is superior to the earthly high priest in many aspects. Last week we looked at those three qualifications of the high priest. First was the work. right? And the work was that they were a mediator. They were seen as a mediator between God and man and man and God. They were God's representative to man and man's representative to God. Now, the reason for that was that man could not approach God without a mediator. God, man could not approach God without that high priest. And matter of fact, we would not approach God without a mediator. We're talking about the work of the Spirit in Sunday school this morning. We would not approach God on our own apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. We would run from Him. We would flee from Him. So the high priest acted as God's representative to man and man's representative to God. Until Jesus came and died His sacrificial death... Man did not have access to God on his own. Think about that. Talk about the blessings of the new covenant that we can bow our head in prayer, confess our sin, give thanks, um, give praise to God, intercede on behalf of others, give adoration to God, in essence, worship God through prayer. Old Testament saints didn't have that kind of access. 
they had to go through the high priest. Again, pointing to Jesus. Now, you don't have to come to me and confess your sin. We don't have to go in the confessional in the corner and you confess your sin. You go directly to God to confess your sin. You go directly to God to give thanks. You call upon Him wherever you are. No Jew was free to enter that Holy of Holies. Think about that for a moment. That no Jew could go behind that curtain where the, where the Holy of Holies was at, where the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat was on. They could not go in there. And that was where the Holy Spirit met the high priest. Now where does the Holy Spirit dwell? In this temple. This temple not made with hands. That this temple that will live forever. By the way, the Scripture tells us that we will have the Spirit of God forever. The Old Testament, He just came and went. But He has come and abides in us. Then we saw their identification that they could sympathize with the people as they, the high priests, were sinners themselves. They understood the temptation of sin. They understood the weakness of the flesh because they themselves were sinners. An awareness of their own weakness enabled them to deal gently with the ignorant and misguided. And then their appointment. They did not take this upon themselves. Turn in Numbers 28 real quick. I mentioned that last week, but I want to show you this is the appointment of Aaron uh, as a high priest. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the children of Israel and say to them, My offering, my food for my offerings made by fire as a sweet aroma to me, you shall be careful to offer to me at their appointed time. And you shall say to them, This is the offering made by the which you shall offer to the Lord. Two male lambs. This is not the right passage that I wanted. But um, nonetheless, we see in the Old Testament that God appointed, appointed Aaron. Now, how do we know that God, Aaron was appointed by God? I gave you the example last week of Korah. That Korah um, questioned God's appointment of Aaron and Moses as their own appointment, as something that they tried to attain to themselves, and what happened? The earth opened up, swallowed them up. After that happened, 14,000 people began to complain in the camp, and they were stricken with a plague. Now, you think God's serious about the way He wants to do things? You think he's serious about us following his way? Now, last week I made the comparison between the high priest and pastors today, and that was not to exalt the work of a pastor. That was not to exalt myself and set me up on a, on a pedestal. But it was simply to show you um, essentially the work and the calling of a pastor. We see the pastor's work, in a sense, is mediatorial, right? That I represent God to you. And I represent that to God. I represent God to you by the way one that I live my life. In essence, you represent God to people in the world by the way you live your life, right? So there's a real sense, and the Bible talks about the priesthood of the believer that you, as a priest of God, are mediating to the lost who God is and the work that He has done in your life. So my, my, the work of a pastor is mediatorial in the sense that we represent to you God to, to God to you, excuse me, by my life, but also by the preaching of the word. 
Paul said that told the Ephesian elders as he was meeting with them before his trip to Rome. He said, "I have not." He has said, "I've not shunned to declare the full counsel of God to you." Basically, saying, "I have not held. I have not withheld anything from you. I didn't hold anything back. I gave you everything God gave to me, folks. That's my desire this morning and in ministry is to give you everything that God gives to me in my studies." We are, the pastors are, God's representative to you, His people. And we represent Him rightly by rightly dividing the word of truth. If I just take a verse and read it, and I walk away and I never come back to the verse, and everything I say is the wisdom of Brian, you are not edified in that. You are not built up in the faith in that. But you are built up in the faith when the Word of God is rightly proclaimed. And then our identification. I, I said last week that if you were to follow me around for a day, it wouldn't even take a day. Follow me around for an hour or two, you know what would happen? He'd say, man, he's a sinner. Right? He, he says things he shouldn't. He responds maybe in ways that he shouldn't or reacts in ways that he shouldn't. Folks, I'm, I'm not above you. I, I've told you the story of uh, when I pastored in Pampa, there was a couple of young kids. I don't even know if they were teenagers at the time. But they asked their grandmother on the way to church one morning, does pastor sin? And she kind of chuckled a little bit. And she said, why don't you ask him that question when you get to church? And that was the first thing they'd done. I walked in, hey, how y'all doing? Pastor, do you sin? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I sin. I'm the chief. I'm the chief of sinners around this place. right? And that's the attitude that we all ought to have, is that we are the chief of sinners. And not that we get to where we're comparing each other's sin to see who's the chiefest, but that we see ourselves as Paul saw himself in light of the gospel. And so, all right, my identification is with you. And look, here's, here's we talked about the, the high priest that they were able to identify with, the, uh, with people who were misguided and people who were ignorant of the Word. You know what? It takes patience to teach God's Word. It, it takes patience to teach you, God's Word. There's, there's, well, for one, there's a lot of things that we have to unlearn. There are assumptions that we made. If you grew up in church, there are assumptions about the Bible that you have that are not biblical. And so there's patience required in teaching God's Word. You know, it's just like teaching our, our kids to ride a bike. I mean, you don't, they don't just get on the bike and, man, they're gone. Or even worse than ride a bike. Brandon, you'll get to experience this one day. Teaching your kids how to drive. Man, you want to talk about nerve-wracking. Woo! It, it'll, man, it, it'll, it, it'll get on every nerve. But you know what you do? You patiently work with them, don't you? You patiently work with your kids in teaching them. And it's the same in the church, folks, is that we patiently run through the Scripture. And then the appointment is not of our own doing. And I mentioned last week that I've tried to get away from pastoring. I've tried to leave the ministry. And it just, I get yanked back into it every time. Every single time I get yanked back into it. Now, in light of that, in light of the appointment, there are some pastors who are mama called and daddy sent. Right? Mama wants a preacher boy. And there's a little bit of pride, right, in having a preacher boy in the family. Their mama called, so mama calls them, talks them into being a preacher, and dad pays for them to go to seminary. Now let me say this. I, this is not putting down on seminary. I don't, I've not been to seminary. I plan on doing some coursework uh, this spring. 
But you know what a seminary, I said this Sunday night, you know what a seminary proves? That you can do the required work to pass a test to get a degree. That's what seminary proves. It doesn't prove you to be a pastor. It doesn't prove you to be a teacher. Now, that's not to say that study of particular subjects to aid in pastoral ministry is not necessary. If I didn't think it was necessary, I wouldn't endeavor to go um, do this seminary work. Nonetheless, in our text last week, we talked about the high priest of the Old Testament pointing to Christ in the New Testament who is ever interceding on our behalf. We talked about Old Testament types and shadows pointing to New Testament eternal spiritual realities. That, that there's not... It's, though they're two separate covenant testaments, so to speak, one testifies to the other. And the other proves the testimony of the one. You follow what I'm saying? Is that, and in essence, they really go together. You can see the types and shadows in the Old Testament come to fruition and fulfillment in the New Testament. This is seen in everything that we've talked about up to this point in Hebrews. In particular, the role of the high priest. I mean, think about that for a moment. That there was the high priest needed to intercede on behalf of the people. And today, at this very moment, we have Jesus, the high priest, interceding on our behalf. That it's not just some... some thing that we think to be true, but it is a present reality for us. It's also seen in the offering of sacrifice for the sin of the people. Once a year, that atonement had to be made. Their their sins, they, they constantly, for a moment during the sacrifice, they felt forgiveness and the, and the freedom from sin But then the rest of that time, up until the next time they had to offer that, there was the weight on their conscience, the weight on their shoulders as it were. But Jesus was that perfect sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Matter of fact, He had that when He he was sacrificed on the cross, it ended what the Jews were doing. Now, as I thought about this this week and got this, I'm amazed at where my studies take me in relation to these great truths. When I, when I contemplated this reality this week, my mind was drawn to several passages. So, if you would, turn to Matthew 27. As we think about this sacrifice, we think about what Christ has done um, on the cross and, and through His sacrificial uh, death, the atonement was made satisfaction for something that was demanded, for payment that was demanded. Here in Matthew 27, in this verse, this is where Jesus is hanging on the cross. And about noon that day, the the, the darkness came upon the land. The sun was darkened. It was dimmed. There was a darkness not only seen, but most likely felt. And I believe within those that three-hour span there, from about noon that day to that what they call from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, which was noon to about three, 
that God's wrath was being poured out upon Jesus. And He didn't want people to see what was being done to His only Son. And look at verse 50. After this takes place, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His Spirit. Look at John chapter 19, verse 30. We see the same thing again. Jesus had asked for a drink. They filled a sponge with sour wine or vinegar, put it on hyssop, put it in His mouth, and when He had received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. Payment has been made, and bowing His head, He gave up His Spirit. Now turn to Luke 23. When I was studying this week, I I read this, and as I thought on this, I I was not uncontrollably, but just weeping and thinking of what was going on in this moment. In in verse uh, 39, go back up to verse 39. So, Jesus is on the cross, the thieves are on either side of him. Then one of the criminals who was hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. That sounds kind of selfish, doesn't it? But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God? Seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due ward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Verse 42, Then He said to Jesus, Lord, remember Me when You come into Your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly I say to you, today you will be with Me in paradise. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. At that moment that the sacrifice was made, that God's wrath was poured out upon Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, the sent one, I would imagine, I don't know for sure, but there was a priest back there offering the blood of the atonement and he hears that veil tearing. And what is that veil tearing doing? It's exposing that what they are doing is sufficient, insufficient. And what Christ has now done is sufficient. Verse 45, Then the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, notice this, He said, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. Having said this, He breathed His last breath. you realize what's taking place here? Do you get a picture of what's taking place here? The last words of Jesus as He hung on the cross I commit my spirit spirit into your hands was a direct quote of Psalm 31 verse 6 where David is praying um, a, a, a song of thanksgiving for deliverance from trouble, most likely from Saul. David appeals to the Lord's righteousness in his distress caused by the wickedness of the enemy. His right, as he appeals to God's righteousness, it indicates God's commitment 
to save those in covenant relationship with Him. Folks, understand that any kind of distress that we are under, that though we may not receive relief at that moment in time, there is relief coming. And that is coming in the form of Jesus Christ when He returns to this earth to rapture His own. In verse 6, David is simply saying, when he says, I commit myself into your spirit, David is saying, I'm trusting you with my life. I'm putting my life into your hands in light of the distress around me. Folks, we would do well to heed the words of David. And let, let me say this, I've said this before, but if God has numbered our days, what do we have to fear in our day and age? Absolutely nothing. Let's go back to the cross. This quote of Psalm 31, in the context of what is taking place, from about noon to three, there was a supernatural darkness. A darkness that covered the earth, it says. This darkness was perhaps a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy from Joel chapter 2. And then it was cited by Peter in his sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And during the darkness, what was hid from man was God's wrath being poured out upon His Son. His wrath being poured out upon His Son. Matter of fact, turn to Isaiah 53. This probably escapes us as we're hurrying to read through Scripture in our daily and yearly programs of reading. In this crushing of Jesus Christ, in this punishment of Jesus Christ, in this pouring out His wrath upon His only Son, verse 10 of Isaiah 53, which is a prophecy of the coming suffering servant realized in Christ, it says, that first phrase, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. It pleased the Lord to crush Him. Why did it please God the Father to crush His Son with the punishment for our sin? Because Christ was a perfect sacrifice. Because it ended with Him. He was the perfect sacrifice. We saw when the sacrifice was made, the veil that hid the Holy of Holies where the high priest went every year was torn from top to bottom. Exposing the insufficiency, the inadequacy, and the ineffectiveness of the blood sacrifice. If those animals and goats had saved, you'd only have to offer it once. Yet it was constant reminder of their sin. And yet we see in Christ, He was offered once. All these things pointed to the New Testament reality of Christ's birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension. It pointed to the one that would come in the place of the bulls and goats that could not save, nor clear the conscience of man in a million lifetimes. Do you understand why 1 John 1.9 is such a magnificent verse in the life of a Christian? Because it clears our conscience of sin. If we confess our sin. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
that we could go to God the Father, confess our sin to Him, and walk away forgiven and cleansed. And not have that bearing on our conscience any longer. Folks, that was what Christ done. That was what He accomplished. This simple yet profound phrase that we saw in Luke 23, 46 indicates that the Savior died the only kind of death that was able to satisfy the justice of God and save fallen man. It further indicates the voluntary sacrifice which Christ died. John 10, 17 and 18 says that no man takes my life but I lay it down. Man, what a sacrifice. Now this leads us to our text today. Jesus was the final high priest who is superior to all other high priests in His mediatorial work on behalf of His people. Jesus' high priestly role is not compared to those of the Levitical priesthood though. If you understand uh, um, the priestly system within the Jewish religion, it was all of one tribe, the Levites beginning with Aaron of the tribe of Levi. But that's not the comparison that's made. It's this unknown and otherwise mysterious figure named Melchizedek. Now let me ask you this question, just by a show of hands. Who has not heard of Melchizedek up until reading this text this morning? Anyone? Everyone's heard of him? I had a conversation with someone about him this week. Alright, good. There's debate over who Melchizedek is. And he's mentioned only twice in Scripture. One is in Genesis 14-18 where uh, uh, Lot was kidnapped from Sodom and taken by uh, um, one of the kings. There was five kings uh, that went into battle against four kings. He was taken captive by one of those five kings. And when Abram at the time heard of it, he went and chased him down and got Lot back. On his way back, he was met by this Melchizedek to whom Abram paid tithes and offerings. He's also seen in in, in Psalm 110 verse 4. Now, there is, and let me say this, my intention, and we're going to, we're going to close out here in a moment because there's I, my intention is not to just uh, overwhelm you with information. But I want to set the stage, lay the foundation with explaining uh, who Melchizedek is so that we get an understanding of, of this high priestly role that Jesus fulfills for us. I want us to take in a few considerations on who Melchizedek is. Now, there are, are some, and I believe this up until a year or two ago, um, that he was the pre-incarnate Christ. In other words, he was a Christophany, um, theologians call it, is that he was an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ before Jesus was, was incarnate in the flesh um, as we see him born to Mary. Um, there's tons of problems with that. I'm not getting into those. But secondly, that he was the, the patriarchy of Shem. And Shem was the was a an ancestor of the Jews, the Semites. Now, there's a problem with that. And the problem is 
that we are not given any ancestry with Melchizedek. Nobody knows where he came from. We know he was probably a Canaanite king, priest, but don't know who his mom and dad were, don't know who his grandparents were, don't know if he had any kids. There's nothing given to us in the Scripture concerning him. We know he was a Gentile. Thirdly, Melchizedek was a Canaanite priest king, and it would not have been unusual for a Canaanite ruler to meet a victorious Abram when Abram conquered those kings. However, in the light of the degrading nature of Canaanite religious practices, it would be unusual to find a Canaanite priest who worshiped the one true God. Now, let's go with that being said, let's go over to Genesis 14. Look at verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, which Salem means peace, Salem was also Jerusalem. It would later be called Jerusalem. Um, Brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. Now, that's odd that a Gentile king priest would be priest of the Most High God. Now, I want to point out Maybe a fourth option with a, a couple of points under that. The, the problem of, of Melchizedek's identity is a perplexing one. Really, there's, as I said, there's not enough information to know who he was. And there may be some strengths and weaknesses with each view of, of who people think he is. And it's an ongoing debate. So I want to consider for a moment a fourth option for us. Remember, we've, we've, we've talked about Old Testament types and shadows becoming New Testament spiritual realities. And that's this. We've heard of the term Gentile inclusion. Now, if you look at the Old Testament as a whole, primarily, the Gospel went to the Jews. David was known to bring Gentiles into, to proselytize them, bring them into the, the, uh, the Jewish religion, but it wasn't rampant. It wasn't like we see in Christianity with the gospel going forward and we have people uh, by droves coming in. Paul called this the mystery of Christ. Look at Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Now, a mystery, or, or this revelation is speaking of here, is a disclosure or unveiling or uncovering of a truth. Ephesians chapter 3. Verse 1 through 7. Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already. And, and you see that in Romans 11, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Now what is that mystery that Paul's speaking of? Well, let me give you a couple of definitions. Revelation, first of all, is speaking of a disclosure, unveiling, or uncovering of truth. 
An example of that would be as you study your Bible, as you pray and ask God to give you understanding, that, that God reveals to you the truths of His Scripture. It's not something super t- superstitious, but as you commit yourself to study, as you commit yourself to read, as you commit yourself to pray, that God peels back the layers of revelation allowing you to see His Word. Now, any revelation that we get of God's Word is a gracious display of His divine kindness. He is not obligated to us, folks. But in His covenantal love for us, is gracious to give us this revelation. The natural man can't understand it. The natural man does not understand why, people, why Christian people want to be around one another when we have so many differences. They can't understand why we make reconciliation with each other when we have disagreements. They, they can't understand the things we do, why we do the things we do. Only the spiritually minded can understand this. This, is a, this mystery is a spiritual truth couched under an external representation or similitude. So what he's saying is this, this, this mystery is something that, that's really kind of hidden underneath the surface. And that's what I'm talking about with Melchizedek. Is that we see early on, way back in the Old Testament, that God's divine plan included our people, Gentiles. Now folks, that ought to make us want to shout that God, even though He hid that in the Old Testament, it was never plan B, Brother Brand. It was always plan A for God to have a people of every kindred, tongue, and tribe of the world. So when we look at Melchizedek, we don't just see this mysterious figure that no one can explain. We see God hiding a truth in Him that He has included not just Jews, but Gentiles. Now what does this have to do? Um, this, shadow, this, this shadow, this type is realizing Christ as we see in this chapter and really in all of Hebrews, talking about Hebrews chapter 5. Now, let me, let me close right here. I'll just, we're, I'm running out of time here. What does this have to do with Gentile inclusion? It was a mystery once hidden, but now is revealed. How has it been revealed? How has Gentile inclusion been revealed? By the proclamation of the gospel by the public, global proclamation of the gospel, that there are people now coming into this kingdom. Now let me leave you with a few things here. Real quick. This is a deep subject. This is, even though there's not much known about Melchizedek, there is much to be discussed about Melchizedek. So here's what I want you to do. Just a few things. Number one, and I realize, and look, I'm saying this in light of what's coming up in our text in a couple of weeks, when Paul says there's much to explain, but you're dull of hearing. I want you to do ask God to help you understand things that seem hard. Look, there are truths that I struggle with, and I struggle with, and I struggle with, but constant, persistent, diligent study leads to understanding. Not just of my own, but God being gracious through that diligent effort to give understanding. Secondly, study. Get you a good reference Bible and study. Check out all those references. Thirdly, ask questions. Folks, that's why we have Sunday night. So that we can come and ask questions about things we don't understand. If I can't give you an answer then, 
I promise you, I will get you an answer. And there may be someone here that tonight that can answer that question. I'm not gonna, I don't know everything. I haven't got it all figured out yet. But we need to pray. We need to pray. Ask God to help us and give us understanding. The point is to come to a fuller understanding of truth. We want to know the Word of God. We, we want to know that we can worship Him rightly. We want to love Him more fervently. We want to obey Him more diligently. And we want to have our straight faith strengthened. Look, we are in living in a time where we must. It is, uh, it, it is imperative that we dig even deeper into our Bible in this day and age that we live in. Because our faith is going to be shaken. And if we're not grounded in the truth, if we're not grounded in the Word of God, we will be shaken from the tree. Let's pray.